Amen. You would not know this from Leviticus 19, but I'm going to tell you anyway. All of Leviticus is an answer to the question that is posed in the very last verses of the book of Exodus. At the end of Exodus, God has brought His people to the point that a tabernacle has been made. There is now a place where they can go and be with God in worship. And yet the end of Exodus says, and you can check this out a bit later, it says, but there was no one found who was able to intercede for God's people before the Lord. And Leviticus is an answer to the question, who can intercede for us before the Lord? Think of yourself at the moment at which you are most sin-filled, when you have been most in rebellion against God, you ask the question also, who can intercede for us before the Lord? And Leviticus, again, is an answer to that question. And so it goes through, who are the priests? What does it mean to offer sacrifices and what sort of sacrifices are there? He gives us a robust, full answer to the question, who can stand for us before the Lord? And Leviticus as a whole is driving us to the point where we have no answer but this, who can stand for us before the Lord? The answer is this and this alone. Jesus can. He alone stands for us before a holy God. By the time we come to chapter 19, the question then is, what does it mean for us to have an intercessor who stands for us before the Lord? And this is the second part of Leviticus where Leviticus says, if we have someone who stands for us before the Lord, who we are as his people will be transformed. And that's really the message I have for you this morning. You can see in the title, I mean to bridge the gap between Sunday and Monday. All of you look very nice this morning, if you don't mind me saying that. And I'm saying that not only do you appear nice, you're dressed well, but we all put on our best face when we come to worship. We want others to see us at our best. Well, what happens on Monday through Saturday in our homes, in our businesses, in our relationships? Do they also reflect the holiness that we say is present when we're here in worship? The holiness that comes from God and is meant to expand into our hearts and really invade who we are as human beings is the holiness of Sunday reflected on Monday through Saturday. If it is meant to be, that this holiness that we say we're enjoying here this morning in worship, if that's meant to be reflected in our lives as a whole, we need help in understanding what does that holiness look like. And that is why we are in Leviticus 19. Because I want to connect your Sunday with your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. In order to do that, I want to pay attention to two sections from Leviticus 19. You might have noticed as we read through this chapter that the chapter naturally has two portions. And it has two portions that are meant to summarize and emphasize this statement, I am the Lord your God, that said repeatedly at the end of almost every single section. And there's some version of that that said over and over to emphasize to us that what is being found in these verses are not random moral instruction to us. These are the words meant to point us to what it means for us to walk as though God were real in our lives. 
that we had a Lord our God. If God is Lord, what does it mean for us to walk before Him? And there are two places where Moses applies that specifically to the relationships that we have with others. The first place, if you look in your Bibles, comes at the end of the first section. That's verses 17 and 18. And I want to talk about those two verses first as summarizing what comes before that in chapter 19. Because it's meant, those verses are meant to summarize for us what it means for us to love people who are close to us. And then if you turn your eyes a little further through the chapter, through chapter 19, to the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 30, you will see again there is a summary statement now not applied to those who are close to us, but those who are more distant from us, those we might call the strangers in our lives, those that we don't have as close a relationship with. And I understand that these two summary statements do not explain everything in chapter 19. But they do provide us a window through which we can begin to understand not only chapter 19, but the moral imperatives of the rest of the book of Leviticus. So let me help you by opening these two windows through which you can see the rest of the book of Leviticus by beginning with the first summary set of statements found there, as I said, in verses 17 and 18. Again, Moses says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What I want to say to you first about loving those close to you is that these words are powerful words that really capture what is found in the rest of this chapter. If you were to count at home this afternoon, you would find that there are roughly 14 positive commands in this chapter and 30 negative commands. And if you were to sort out those commands, if you were to divide them into sections, you would see that at least in the first part of this chapter, there is this great emphasis on what it means to love those that we might call our brothers, our sisters, those close to us. You can tell that these are people we interact with in the ordinary course of our lives because these people are identified as brother or neighbor or your own people. I think that's helpful to emphasize because I have found that the content of these verses is particularly difficult to apply to those that we know the best. There's an old phrase, it says, that we tend to despise those that we know best. And in this context, Moses, by the Spirit, is telling us that we're also called to love those that we know best. The situation that's imagined here in these verses is not difficult to understand. Maybe it's already happened to you this morning or yesterday. You're with someone who's close to you, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a close friend, and that person said something to you that was critical and you didn't like what they had to say. Maybe even it was petty. You came ready to go to worship and your close one said something about the way that you were dressed. Or your spouse or your friend or someone close to you 
made you feel embarrassed, where maybe they received attention when you felt like you deserved it. And for whatever reason, you feel irritation, you feel angry, you might even feel hatred toward that person. I'd ask you to pause for a moment and ask yourself the question, what do you do when you feel that way with someone close to you? The easiest thing to do is to do nothing externally. You might even justify your response in your own mind. I can remember an elder at a previous church telling me that the Bible never said you have to be best friends with everybody, including everyone in the church, which is true. It's true because it's not physically possible to be best friends with everyone. But what he meant was, I am excusing my own dislike for someone by saying it's obvious I cannot be best friends. He wasn't seeking to be a best friend. He was seeking to excuse, not working out a problem he had with another church member. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, reason frankly with your brother. Reason frankly. We might say engage enough with the one who is close to you to clear the air about your difference. Be honest about what is going on in your heart. Not because you want to stick it to the other person, but because hatred builds when we feed our discontent with another person. Again, I recall another elder in another church who had left because of a problem that had happened, a major problem in that church, but then was invited back to come and speak after a morning worship service and to answer questions from whoever was willing to come and to ask him questions and people came. And they asked some very, very difficult questions. And he did his best to answer those questions. And he even did something he did not come anticipating that he would do. That is, he repented to people that he had really harmed. Do you know the result of that conversation was that it cleared the air. It restored relationships. It brought connection rather than nurturing disagreement and hatred. And even though that elder did not come back to our church, when people in our church saw that brother, they actually thought of him as someone they cared about. Contrast that to another elder in the same church with the same problem, who also laughed, who refused to reconcile. You know how this goes as well. When I asked him about coming and doing the same thing, he used that phrase, it's water under the bridge or water over the dam. Let's move on. He kept telling himself that he did not need to do more than that because he was right and the other people were wrong. Really what love requires is humility. It requires a frankness in conversation that opens your heart to say to another person, I might be wrong. Can you help me See whether it's not just you, but also me. If you are unable to do that, you would not be able to keep the commandment that says, do not hate your brother in your heart, but reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Why is this so important? The reason this is so important is emphasized in a variety of places, both in the Old and New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says in John 
that it is impossible for us to say, this is 1 John, that we love God if we do not love our brother whom we can see. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, they will know that you are Christians by, he does not say by your theological orthodoxy, even though we want to be theologically orthodox. He does not say that they will know that you are my disciples by how often you come to worship, even though we should come to worship, as the Bible says in other places. No, what John says, what Jesus records in John, is the most basic of all the ways that others will see that we are Christians. He says they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for each other. And that's all that Leviticus 19 is saying in verses 17 and 18. In a world that fosters discord, encourages disagreement. It tells us to take sound bites and to expand them so that we can see the worst about those we do not agree with. Instead of that being the way we engage with each other, we are told... In this passage, rather than standing up for ourselves and not letting anybody tell us what to do and who we're supposed to be, Moses says, by the Spirit of God, deal frankly with your brother. Talk to him. Engage him. Reason with him. That the world would know that you are my disciples. To put it simply this morning, I'm calling you to be countercultural to be demonstrations of the coming of Jesus' kingdom now, even though it may be in a small way and simply the way that you interact with other people, to be a people who are willing to humble themselves, to make a difficult phone call, to sit down over breakfast with someone that you need to clear the air with, to do your best that you do not have a grudge against another, to live as Romans 12 verse 18 says, if it is possible as much as it depends on you, Live at peace with all. If there's vengeance that needs to be done, if there's justice that needs to be repaid, and often there is, leave that to the Lord and to those He has appointed to bring about that justice. God can give justice, my friend. If need be, you can give it to the leaders of the church or the civil authorities in some cases. If there is justice to be done, the Lord can do it. But as far as you are able in the most ordinary parts of the human life, in the places in which we excuse ourselves and we exalt our pride and we refuse to engage with those who are closest to us, hear the call of Leviticus this morning to close the gap between the holiness of Sunday and the ordinary life of Monday through Saturday. Love your neighbor as yourself because I am the Lord. Which brings me to the second section that is found here in Leviticus 19, and that's found, again, to have a summary at the end of the section. Again, if you look in your Bibles at verses 33 and following, you will notice in verses 33 and 34, there is a summary. Only this time it is addressed not to those who are close to us, but it is addressed to those who are further from us, those whom we might consider strangers. Again, I would point out to you 
that these are meant to be summary statements that help us understand some things, although perhaps not everything that is found in this chapter. And the command here to those who are strangers, those who are sojourners, is that you do him no wrong. And then the application that follows in the last few verses of this chapter has to do with something we're all familiar with, and that is the way that we engage strangers in the way that we do business. The way that we interact with people when they're buying or selling things, when we have the opportunity to take advantage of others. And the command is to do, you can see it there, to do no wrong in the way business is done with weights, lengths, quantities, and measures. Of course, you can imagine at the time in which this was written, how easy it was to treat a stranger unfairly. Imagine the weights that you might use when you go to a market. The seller says that counterweight in the balance scale is a pound, for example. You have to take the seller's word for it. And so if he says it's a pound, how are you to know? It's easy to cheat. Or think of more contemporary examples. Sort of it makes me smile, but how many of you are going to go to a county fair this summer? And you're going to play that game. Maybe you won't now after I tell you this story. But you're tempted to play this game where all you have to do is take the basketball and throw it through a hoop. It's not even free throw distance. Little do you know, however, that the hoop is smaller and the ball is bigger than what you're ordinarily used to shooting. So that throwing that, shooting that ball through that hoop is much more difficult than what you did maybe yesterday in your driveway. You think you can do it, but you can't. Why? Because the weight and the measure is off. Or imagine if you're a farmer. This goes back a number of years, probably can't be done anymore. But maybe you can at least imagine with me something like this happening. You're a farmer and you bring your crops into town to be weighed and you throw something in the bottom, maybe the corn that's not as good. You put down there in the bottom so when you unload it, the corn looks like it's good, but maybe it's not as much as it appears. Or imagine that you sell some real estate. And you don't disclose the fact that the repairman said the last time he came that the furnace was on its last leg. And you say to yourself, that's my, not my job to tell them. They can get the house inspected. Or imagine that you're selling a table saw on Marketplace. And when the buyer arrives, you'd say it's actually more than what you agreed upon in your tax because now there's been more interest. And so you need to have a little extra. Literally, you can go through your mind all the ways in which we can treat those that we do not know unfairly. And we say in our minds, I'm simply doing what is necessary in the moment. It's not that big a deal. It only hurts them a little bit. But here's the awful truth. That the way that we treat strangers leads them to an understanding of who God is that we say we worship. Let me give you three examples from my own life. I had a landlord that cheated my wife and I out of our deposits. And the reason we believed him when we rented the apartment was because he said, you're Christians, right? So am I. And a man who sold me a lawnmower, he knew had serious engine trouble. And in order to sort of persuade me that what I thought was true wasn't actually true about that lawnmower, he said, well, I'm a Christian too. 
And there was a man who eventually did not pay me what he said he was going to for some work I did for him. And the reason I trusted that he would eventually pay me was because, guess what he said? You can say it. I'm a Christian too. I've come to the point in my own life, sad as it is to say, that when someone says to me, you can trust me because I am a Christian, I am almost certainly not going to do that. And if that's true for me, someone who has lived in the Christian community, someone that you would expect would be more inclined to trust those who say we are Christians, imagine those who are not. And how much damage we do to other people when we say to ourselves, it really doesn't matter how I treat them. This chapter says over and over and over again, but I am the Lord. And the holiness that God has is an attribute. He could not be God without it. It's meant to be reflected in the way that we engage with other people. Should they be close to us? And the natural difficulties that bubble up in relationships that are close to us, or in the way that we engage with strangers, when we tell ourselves, it really doesn't matter how I treat them because I don't know them. In both cases, we are called to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Those who live under His Lordship should be the most reliable, should be the most willing to go and seek out somebody with whom we disagree. They should be the most trusted. We should be the least likely to treat others. Which leads me to ask this question. Why are we not? Why are we not the most willing to speak, to speak frankly with the brother? Why are we not so adverse to taking advantage of other people on occasion. Why? The easy answer, of course, is that we're sinners. We're still in the process of growing after Christ. There's still sin in our hearts, that's true. But let me dig a little deeper. Beyond the simple fact that we're still sinners, why do these sins, one sin that is natural to those who are close to us, another sin that is natural to those who are further from us, why are these sins so easy for us to excuse? The answer is everything to do with who we are as people of Jesus Christ. Even though we believe, listen to this, you do believe if I were to ask you, for example, is God in control of everything? I prayed at length this morning about that in our congregational prayer. God's in control of absolutely everything. We reassure each other with that when someone is sick. Oh, you're sick. God's in control. He'll work out a good end. When someone's looking for a new job, we say, don't worry. God knows what he's doing. He'll take care of you. We have all kinds of situations in which we say God is absolutely, totally in control. But let me ask you the harder question. When you're in conflict with someone close to you, when you're tempted to treat someone you don't know not well, do you actually believe that God is in control of everything? The reason those words fly out of our mouths, the reason we're so willing to cheat someone else is because fundamentally we might doubt whether God is really in control. To put it this way, who loves you more than you? Who's looking out for your best interest more than you? 
then who is to make sure that your life has everything that you deserve? As much as we would say that's an awful thing for me to stand up and say, yes, that's me, that's what I think, often that's what we actually think. No one's going to do for me what I need to have done, so I better do it for myself. Here's the glorious news for you this morning. It's the most beautiful news I could bring you on this beautiful day. There's someone who loves you more than you can ever love yourself. In fact, the love that you have for yourself that is sinful is superseded by and is addressed by the love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. And the lie that you tell yourself, I need to stick it to my brother or cheat my neighbor, the lie that you believe that says, if I don't take care of myself, no one is, is a lie that comes straight from the stink of hell. Because God is able to take care of you. God is able to bring justice into a relationship. God is able to provide you with the money that you need without cheating your brother. God is not only able to do that, He has proven that over and over and over again. Has He not? And if God is able to do that, and He has over and over, friend, do you believe that He can do for that for you now? Because if you do, you can have that conversation. If you do, you can be honest and fair with others. I'm going to end this morning by telling you about someone in the Scriptures who came to a realization of the truth of what I'm saying. It comes from the end of the book of Ephesians, or rather Philippians, rather, from the end of the book of Philippians. If you want to turn there with me, you're welcome to. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, Paul is speaking to the Philippians and he's telling them that one of the things he appreciates about them the most is that when he was in need, they were willing to help him. He said, there were others who did not, but you Philippians, you did. You saw that I was in need and whatever situation I was in, you were willing to help. And because of that, I understand what it is to be needy. I understand what it is to have plenty. I understand all of that. I've learned contentment. And I've learned contentment by means of your care for me. Look at verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Here were Philippians who looked at the money they had, the relationship that existed with Paul, and they did not think to themselves, how can I use that for me? What benefit is it to me? No, they looked at Paul, even when no one else was willing to support him, they looked at Paul and they said, we're willing to love you, even if it costs you, even if it costs me rather a great deal. And that's what Jesus Christ says in our hearts, friends. He turns us from people who count the cost and consider it too weighty to those who count the cost and we say, for you, Jesus, the one who gave your own life, the, willing who came, the one who was willing to come down from heaven itself, leave behind the glory the absolute splendor of heaven. You came into this world and you came here, the Bible says, for one simple reason, because you love me. 
It wasn't for your advantage. It was for mine that you came. And if you, Jesus, were willing to come and to offer yourself here in my place fully, truly, without hesitation, then I believe in the circumstance in which you've given me. I can offer myself as well in reconciling and in treating with honesty those around me. Because what you've given to me, my Savior Jesus, enables me to give to others freely, even if it costs me a great deal. I don't know how this sermon strikes you this morning. Maybe there's no one in your life you need to have a frank conversation with. Maybe you are a person who is absolutely upstanding in every way in the way that you deal with those that you do not know. But I'm guessing there are at least a few of us here and maybe more than a few for whom the tendencies that are revealed by this Old Testament book that is so hard to understand are tendencies that are not just Old Testament or New Testament. They are human. And because they are human, they are addressed directly and pointedly by the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you see yourself, my brother, my sister, as someone called by our God to say, Jesus is my Lord. To echo the words of Leviticus 19, I am the Lord your God. And out of the conviction of the greatness of your God's care for you, to offer yourself in service to those closest, as well as those who are strangers, that the holiness you're experiencing here this morning in worship becomes a holiness that more and more is reflected in your life. Let's pray. Father,